Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we are reviewing Originals by Adam Grant. This is the first Adam Grant book we've read. I really like Adam Grant's thoughts and ideas and uh, talks on other podcasts. I've listened to him a lot. This is the first book I'm reading and uh, I was a massive fan of this one. I loved it. So as the subtitle suggests, How Nonconformists Move the World, it's about how you can become more of a nonconformist and take the path of being an original to move the world in some kind of way. Yeah, he says that psychologists through their studies have delivered that there are two routes to achievement. One is conformity, the other is originality. So conformity means following the crowd down conventional paths and maintaining the status quo. So you're following that uh, well-respected, well-known route, doing a little bit better than everyone else in order to achieve success. Mm, So you're doing the same thing, you're climbing the corporate ladder, the path is known, and it takes a lot of work, but you can get there through hard work to become, you know, like a CEO of a, a Fortune 500 or something along those lines. Yeah, and that's certainly a way to achievement. And the other way, though, to achievement, originality. That's taking the road less traveled. It involves championing a novel set of ideas that go against the grain, but they ultimately make things better. So originality itself starts with creativity. That is generating a concept that is novel and useful. So these originals are people who take the initiative to make their visions a reality. So they're just this random paths that haven't been treaded before and they need to find a way to make this path lead to something good. Yeah, that's it. That's the two parts of it. One is the idea and the second is the action. So this bit, this book is all about how we can all become more original. So when it comes to originality, nothing is completely original. So all of, our, all of our ideas are really influenced by what we learn from the world around us from all our years of uh, living on this planet. Yeah, he talks about this phenomenon called kleptomnesia, so a bit of klepto and a bit of amnesia, which is what we do a lot. It's uh, mm. saying something you think is your own idea, but actually you probably heard it a month ago. We, we do that a hell of a lot and we claim it as our own. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think everyone does it, especially a whole bunch of authors. Mm. I mean, we've used uh, some analogies make its way into pretty much a whole bunch of different books and like I don't know who the original author of some analogies was but uh, there's a lot of people out there claiming the same shit. Yeah, so that's to say that originality, it's not necessarily coming up with a completely brand new idea that's never been heard before but really it's introducing that idea that's unusual to the field and you know it's something that's going to improve it. It doesn't have to be completely brand new but you're the one who's going to bring that idea and champion it to move things forward. Now, having a look at some of the revolutionary leaders who changed the world, like in our mind, we think of the big puppers like Steve Jobs, Abraham Lincoln, Picasso, all the people who really pushed the needle forward. We see them as, you know, bold people, major risk takers who don't suffer from fear or anxiety. They're just wild, wild, loose animals who really just change the status quo. Yeah, we think they must be born with something different because they just go full steam ahead. They tackle the world's biggest problems. They've got this confidence. They've got this boldness. Nothing's going to hold them back. That's what we think of them anyway. He says that in reality, it's almost never the case. They've got a lot of fear of failure and they... You know, they want to maintain this stability. They don't necessarily want to go against the status quo. So some of the greatest change makers in history, he says, were almost never there. He said that they in oftentimes had to be coaxed or convinced to take this uh, initiative and make the move that they wanted to make. So when you're being an original, you're really advocating a new system or a new way of doing things. And implicit in that, if you're creating something new, that means there needs to be some destruction of the status quo or something mm. uh, of the old way of doing things so 
in doing this, there is a lot of fear that all of us hold in rocking the boat in some kind of way. Yeah, we like to paint these massive um, successes as being somehow different to us. But he goes through a few different examples. Like say the Sistine Chapel, the Pope commissioned Michelangelo to paint the ceiling, but Michelangelo viewed himself as a sculptor rather than a painter. So he actually fled from Rome to Florence and he hid out for two years until the Pope eventually found him and said, come on, mate, paint this thing already. Yeah, he cowered like a little, little... (laughs) (laughs) I think you know where we're going with that. A little one. (laughs) And, you know, two years later, he he finally got the, the balls to go and paint the chapel. And that's what he did. And then that's... That's the narrative we've created in history that Michelangelo is this, this bold person who is just a genius, mm. but he was scared like all of us would be in such a situation. Another one is with astronomy. Uh, Copernicus, we think, was this wild revolutionary who had this, found this completely different idea and spread it all across the world. But really, he was actually so scared that he was going to be shunned and rejected and ridiculed that he actually kept his ideas to himself for 22 years. So he had this idea that Perhaps the sun isn't rotating around the earth. Perhaps it's the other way around. And he only told a small group of friends for 22 years. And then one day, a major cardinal found out about it and said, come on, mate, you need to tell the world about this. And he said, no, no way. So the cardinal actually went behind his back and published it on his behalf (laughs) and spread it to the world. Another one was even Apple. So one of the most innovative and almost rebellious kind of brands and companies in the world. And so when Jobs came up to Wozniak and said, come on, mate, we're starting a new company, Wozniak was shit scared of going out and starting his own new adventure. He didn't want to leave his job at Hewlett Packard, who gave him this you know, stable, really stable career. So was he intended to work there forever and afraid that if he was to go out and start his own company, it would damage his prospects of his own career. But eventually Jobs gave him a kick up the ass and so did his friends and parents to go out there and take the risk. Yeah, so we thought that, you know, they were these big risk takers, but they almost weren't. Another one is Google. So Larry Page and Sergey Brin, they were doing their PhD and through that they'd found out this algorithm that they could use to dramatically improve search results. So they started building it a little bit, but then they thought, ah, uh, look, this is sort of a good idea, but we want to focus on our studies. We don't want to give up our PhDs. Let's try and sell it. So they wanted to get out so they could go back to school. Fortunately or unfortunately, they couldn't find a buyer. No one wanted to buy it. Mm. So they thought, damn, we've got to keep working on this. Yeah, Probably so, turned out pretty all right. In the oh, end. absolutely. <laughs> they did well. So the stereotype of all these characters we've just laid out is that they're bold and they're crazy people who just go out and change the status quo. But in every single case, if you peel back the onion layers of truth, they grapple with the fear, ambivalence and self-doubt that all of us do. It's an inherent part of human nature. Mm. So originality isn't a fixed trait. It's a free choice that you need to go out there and gather the mustard to go and, uh, and be original. Yeah, that's the important thing is like this fixed mindset versus growth mindset. We like to paint these guys as oh, they're just different. They were born with, to be risk takers and change the world. But what Adam Grant is saying is that actually in almost all these cases, they really weren't. It was really a choice or they got forced into it. So what he's saying is it's up to us. You can't say that you're not like them because you're exactly like them and you've got the option to be original. This is where the book has a lot of value because everyone listening and everyone reading this book has their own type of original idea that they want to bring the world. You might want to start a company, create a masterpiece, transform Western thought, lead some kind of movement in the world or something along those lines. But sadly, many of us really hesitate to take action on all of these ideas and understandably, as we said, it is scary to actually change things and rock the boat in some way. So he asked the question, the last time you had an original idea, what did you do with it? Mm, 
it's important one to think about because even though you know in the world of 2019 you know we feel like there's so many unique opportunities to express you know ourselves and search for excellence but really we've got this fear of failure and many of us opt to fit in rather than stand out all right so we've got this fear that is inherent whenever we try and rock the boat and change the status quo and he's got a really revealing study on how people uh, manage those fears. You know, some people might be the types who go out there, quit everything, pursue this original idea, and that's it. But there's some people who look at this fear and uh, are a little bit scared and a little bit cautious and tiptoe uh, into that fear. Yeah, there was a study of over 5,000 people across a wide range of locations, ages, genders, races. So it was a representative study. And the question here was, you know, if people are starting a business, who is more likely to succeed? Some people quit their jobs and went all in, so they burned the boats and committed to this business. And some people hedged their bets and stayed in their day job and built the business on the side. So it's up to you guys to have a quick think. What, who is going to be more successful? The person who only half-heartedly went into it by staying in their job or the person who quit their job, burned the boats and went all in on a business? This is a, an analogy Tony Robbins always uses. And he says everyone should go out there and burn the boats. And the analogy, this analogy is taken from some, you know, Chinese commander from 300 years ago who took his whole army overseas to invade another country. And if they had the boats on the shore, they had the option of retreat. So they'd go in half-assed knowing that they can always go back to their boats. But what the commander did, he burned the boats. So then the Chinese army, they knew the only way to safety was to through the other army and go forward. So they went 100% at whatever they had to do. So this analogy is if you quit your job, you're basically burning your boat because you got nothing to fall back on. That means whatever endeavor you're pursuing now, you have to go 100% at it and you're more li- more likely to succeed at it. But that's the the theory. And what mm. was the result, Ashto? Mate, the result was the people who quit their jobs were actually 33% more likely to fail. So the ones who stayed in their jobs had a 33% better success rate than those that quit. So it's definitely something, I guess, unexpected, this finding. And what do you attributes that to is you know we've got this sense of security in our job so we can afford to be more original in our business on the side if you quit and go all in you become too reliant on it so you almost go towards that conventional success you get too addicted to money and making sales and you don't have the opportunity to be original and try something different yes because you can be more much more original in more creative ways uh if you got that that fallback to, to sit on back to the analogy of the boats you know rather than going forward they might have gone back to the boat uh gone back and forth like back it. to china got more reinforcements <laughs> yeah, exactly. so they could actually have a much more effective way of killing the uh the army they had to go forward rather than just going hard all hard all at once because sooner or later you run out of resources in that effort to beat that uh army mm, he says that so this study found that successful entrepreneurs are actually significantly more risk averse than the general population, which is pretty much the opposite of what we would assume from these big risk-taking successful entrepreneurs. He says that to be original, you have to try something new, which means accepting some kind of risk, but the most successful originals were the ones who looked before they leaped. He said that they, rather than just running up and jumping off the cliff and building the plane on the way down, he says that they tiptoed to the edge, they calculated the rate of descent, they triple-checked their parachutes, and they set up a safety net at the bottom just in case. I really like hearing that, man. Yeah, it gives us an excuse, yeah. <laughs> gives, a, gives an excuse. Uh, it goes against that idea of um, go and quit your job, right? Yeah. It's good. 
Yeah, definitely. So he's got uh, the next part of the book. He, he talks about, we've done a bit of book engineering here for this episode, but all about specific actions for impact on you know actions you can do to become more original. Yeah, so we've set up so far that being original is important and now he talks about how we can actually be more original. So the first thing he talks about is question the default. So instead of just taking the status quo for granted, ask why does this exist in the first place? So this... This is something every single person can do, can do in you know whatever business you're in. There are things and conventions people have done for so long they actually forget why they were done this way in the first place. So things have changed all around that so much. There might be better ways. If if you question the default, it means you can actually look a little a little bit peripherally and find a better way of doing things. Yeah, one study that they had was this uh, dude called Michael Hausman. He studied data from thirty thousand employees who were customer service agents. So, he had 30,000 employees, he had 3 million data points on different sales and this was across airlines, banks, cell phone companies. He was trying to work out which employees are more likely to stay in their job longer and which ones are likely to quit earlier and he couldn't find many correlations until he found there was a, a fair bit of correlation with the type of internet browser that they used when they applied for their job. So, there was either Firefox and Chrome in one side or Internet Explorer and Safari on the other side. So, he says that on average, the Firefox and Chrome users stayed in their job 15% longer. They missed work through Sikis 19% less. They were significantly higher on sales. Their call lengths were shorter and they were actually happier in their jobs than the people who used Internet Explorer and Safari. So those who were dealt Internet Explorer and uh, Safari, that was the default. That's what you rock up to your job with and it's sitting there. But the people who said, all right, this is what we've been dealt, actually Chrome is better, which it actually is, and went out there and took their own initiative to go and download Chrome. It might be a really small measure, but it is a different kind of mindset towards mm. being Delta hand and then having some kind of initiative to change something small. And this did extrapolate to other areas of work, as you were just saying, that these people were able to question the default and go out and search and hunt and actually install something a little bit better. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Unfortunately, we can't just think, oh, I'm using Safari, let me go and download Chrome and I'm going to be better at my work. The whole point is that approach, that mindset to always questioning the default. So rather than just assuming, I've got this computer, this is what comes pre-installed in the computer, it's important to go out there and think, is there a better option? So he says that most people, the ones who are just stuck with the default, they're probably like following the same script and they think their job description is fixed. Whereas someone questioning the default is likely to be more original because they're going to inject some of their own personal flavor. They're going to try different things. So it's really just the mindset of always thinking, why is this the way it is and is there a better way? Yes, we live in an internet explorer world. Whatever job you're in, there is a whole bunch of different internet explorer type things that can be improved in some way. So by questioning the default, again, you can just flip the internet explorer on its head and you can start looking for something better. Bang, bang. Boom. The second thing he says is in order to be more original, triple the number of ideas you generate. And this analogy seems to pop into a lot of uh, pretty much every book we read because I think it is powerful. It's the idea that every innovator swings and misses. Mm. And the best way to boost your originality is to produce more ideas. And a similar analogy is the idea of Chris kissing frogs. I mean, if you go to a pond, so there's that old you know, myth of kissing a frog and it turns to a prince. There might be a frog out there that might turn into a prince and it, it changes everything, but you might have to kiss 
uh, thousand toads with warts on the back and blue venom streaking <laughs> down its neck before you actually get to that one that turns into a print. Yeah, it's, uh, we talk about this a lot since we've read The Black Swan. You're not committing to one specific thing that might be The Black Swan, but rather exposing yourself to a whole bunch of different random things that could eventually take off. So rather than just having one idea and committing to it, have a whole bunch of ideas. He's got a whole heap of examples here, like say Shakespeare obviously did very well, um, he actually wrote 37 plays and 154 sonnets across his career, and he had a hell of a lot of stinkers in there as well. Oh, he, said, he says that in the same five-year uh, period, he produced three of his five most popular works, and he also produced his two least popular works. So in that five-year period, he did a lot of stuff, a lot of shit, but a lot of gold as well. Another one is Picasso. And Picasso went out there and did 1,800 paintings, 1,200 sculptures, 2,800 ceramics, 12,000 drawings, plus rugs, tapestries, and prints. So, Picasso was a wild man. That's a lot of stuff. He did a lot of stuff, worked very, very hard. And again, it was only a select uh, number of his artwork that uh, remain today and are perennial. Yeah, one that I liked was the London Philharmonic Orchestra. They selected their 50 greatest pieces of classical music. And in there, there were six from Mozart, five from Beethoven, three from Bach. And what it turns out that Mozart wrote over 600 different pieces, Bach wrote over 1,000 different pieces, but only three of them are in the top 50 of all time. So it's yeah. like there's a lot of shit out there. There was three absolutely phenomenal ones, but there was a lot of stinkers. Oh, absolutely. And another one to, to wrap these off is uh, even Einstein. So we see him as the smartest person of all time, right? But he obviously came up with general rel- relativity and special relativity that really changed all of science and how we do things and was a seed for a lot of the inventions we have today. However, he had 248 published papers that had a really minimal, minimal impact. Yeah, exactly. So throughout history, we kind of narrate all the, the failings out, but in reality, all these people had this huge, huge volume of work and then we narrate those out and we just remember the, the cheeky, the big puppers that uh, we have today. Yeah, he says when we judge greatness, we don't look at the averages, we just look at the peaks. And generally, there's this like widely assumed trade-off between quantity and quality. You think that, okay, I want to commit to doing something really, really good, so you do less work. But he says that's completely the wrong way to do it, that the most reliable and predictable path to getting to that amazing quality is actually quantity. Because obviously, like we said, you never know what's going to be the best stuff. So you've got to do a hell of a lot of stuff and the quality will shine through. Yes, yes. Go out there and do a lot of shit, throw a lot of shit against the wall. Some shit sticks. Yeah. Love it. Most, f- of it. most of it just smells. We should do the... Um, <laughs> should we just... We should stop, we should stop with the shit analogies. <laughs> yeah. What was that book where it said... If Linking you, it to shit, yeah. Yeah, if you keep saying... It was um, Scott Adams. Scott Adams. Yeah. If you keep saying it, it, um, it links you to it. So yeah. we'll, we'll try and cut that from future episodes. Throw a lot of pasta against the wall. Then. Throw <laughs> <laughs> creamy chicken pasta with cheese. Oh. <laughs> Number three, immerse yourself in a new domain. Yeah, he says that there was a really interesting study between some of the top scientists from the last 105 years. And what he found that there was obviously really, 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 really good scientists who were the top of their field. And then there was a level slightly above that, which is the Nobel Prize winners. So in terms of science, they're almost identical in terms of what they did through science and their research. But what they found that the ones that took the next step to the Nobel Prize winners actually injected a whole lot of different domains into their life. So he found that they were twice as likely to play music, like uh, playing an instrument or conducting an orchestra. They were seven times as likely to do drawing, painting and sculpting. They were 12 times more likely to write, like poetry or books, and they were 22 
times more likely to perform like acting, dancing or being a magician. Mm. So if you think about the conforming scientists and their way to success was getting extremely, extremely good at their craft, Mm. doing PhDs and going really deep in this one niche. But what originals do is they go a little bit wide, take from other disciplines and industries, things that are seemingly completely unrelated, right? Like so... You know, Nobel Prize is a lot of the time science and physics, chemistry and so forth. And now they're bringing in performing arts and magic and writing and poetry. So seemingly unrelated, but there is a big correlation between these fields and becoming original in whatever area you're in. It's very counterintuitive, yeah. You'd think that, okay, if you've got an extra hour each day, should you go play piano or should you do an hour of extra research? You'd think that more research would lead to being a better scientist, but it's surprising that being original in a completely different creative field made you a better scientist. So we want to take from different disciplines to, uh, to, to inject this in. There's a few different strategies you can do. One is uh, job rotation. So get trained to do a position that requires a new base knowledge of skills. So something completely multidisciplinary to whatever your base level of skills are right now. Yeah, and a different one is to experience and immerse yourself in a different culture. So we talked about some of the world's best fashion designers and it turned out that the more time they spent living and working overseas, the more creative they became in their fashion designing. Mm, yeah, you don't want, if you go to Paris, you don't go there just for two days and mm. uh, take a photo of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> you kind of live there for, for you know six months. Eat a lot of crepes and croissants. Eat a lot of crepes and croissants, speak French and so <laughs> forth yeah. and that's how you become original. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I like it. So number four is procrastinate strategically so another thing we can do so when you're generating your new ideas you need to deliberately stop when your progress is incomplete yeah he says it by taking a little break in the middle of the process whether that's brainstorming or writing or whatever it is if you stop and pause and leaving it unfinished we've talked about the zeogarnic effect before where your brain still thinks about the unfinished thing in the background so you're more likely to engage in divergent thinking and you know if you give those ideas a little bit of time to incubate they might become something great yeah your un- your unconscious brain has a real different way of dealing with things and for original ideas your un- unconscious brain is the the thing that can actually take an un- incomplete idea and turn it into something completely original i mean if you think back to einstein and so forth uh it was completely his, his unconscious brain that came up with the ideas of special relativity they were so far away from what the the, the paradigm of newtonian physics was it was his unconscious brain that came up with the wacky the wackiness of of this uh these concepts yeah i remember hearing recently that uh the guy who came up with the periodic table i think he was like having a nap and it came to him and uh and mick jagger apparently one time was in a, a sleep and he woke up and there was like a page of writing and it was one of their best songs i think it was maybe satisfaction or one of their songs that he'd written whilst he was asleep so it's pretty crazy yeah wow that is cool <laughs> So there are some of the ways that we talked about to come up with more ideas and better ideas. Now, the next thing he talks about is how you actually present these ideas and spread them to people because if you're just a wild dude going out there with this crazy idea like Copernicus saying everyone who thinks the sun goes around the earth is completely wrong, that's wild, man. They're probably not going to accept that. So you've got to be careful with how you present and spread these ideas. Yeah, so, you're, so when you're trying to pitch something completely new, uh, one way you can actually do this effectively is to really make them more familiar in any way you can. So he has the example here of the Lion King, which originally the first iterations of the script wasn't Lion King. They called it they called it Bambi in Africa with lions. So at this stage, it was a, it was a crock of shit, right? And they were pitching <laughs> it to the, the Disney executives and the CEOs like, what the hell is this? This sucks. 
And then all of a sudden, one producer said her name was Maureen Donnelly. And then the producer, Maureen Donnelly, uh, stopped the, the meeting and said, no, this story isn't this. This story is actually Hamlet. And in Hamlet, the uncle kills the father, then the son has to avenge the father's death. So in this pivotal moment, the film got the green light. As the Disney executive, he knew what Hamlet was, so it was a very familiar idea, wasn't too wild and wacky. Uh, still a wild and wacky movie compared to the, the, the paradigms at the time, but it was an old story repackaged as something new. Yeah, and the important part that he notes here was the first thing that you do really impacts the rest of it. So the quote is like, starting the starting point of generating ideas is like the first brush stroke that you lay down on a canvas. And it really shapes the path for the rest of the painting and it constrains what we might imagine. So what happened was at first, they want to make a Disney movie, obviously. Like Shakespeare is not really Disney, so they started off with the idea, let's sort of make it a bit like Bambi, but we'll make it with lions. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a cartoon. It's going to be a kid's movie. But then what happened later was they realized, actually, this is a bit Shakespeare. If they had started with, let's do Shakespeare, but we'll make like a kid's cartoon version, it would have been a piece of shit. So they started with the kid's idea and then added in the Shakespeare afterwards. Mm. So that's one way you can do it, making your ideas more familiar. And another thing, if you're looking to voice and champion original ideas, and this is probably more in the sense of if you're trying to create a big radical movement, you need to really be a tempered radical. Mm-hmm. So if your idea is way too extreme, you need to couch, couch it in a more conventional goal. Yeah, he says that the instead of trying to change people's mind with something completely radical, you need to appeal to their, their current values and beliefs that they already hold and then shift it ever so slightly. Because if you really want to actually really change the status quo in a big movement, uh, it will only probably be done by a minority. But at the same time, you need to actually change the whole majority. So if you turn the majority off this movement, then you're cooked. It's not going to go anywhere. You're just going to be a bunch of radical idiots as a minority and you're going to stay a minority. Yeah, exactly. If you think about the idea, uh, Simon Sinek, start with why. So spreading your why is a really good way to appeal to people rather than just telling them the what. If you build it through the why, it makes them understand it more and they get the big picture quicker. But he says that there's a big challenge here that you've got to be careful with how you communicate your why because whilst you've got these strong ideas, you need to start with something a bit more palatable to the masses that can shift it more slowly. And he talks the idea of using like a bit of a Trojan horse. So rather than just going all in trying to burst through the gates, send them a little Trojan horse in and hide inside and pop out when they're asleep. Mm, that's right. <laughs> Open the gates and destroy them all. But uh, he uses the example of the Occupy Wall Street movement. So during the Occupy... Wall Street movement that began in 2011. At the start of the year when it first started, most Americans were all in favor of what the general idea of the movement was. You know, it was against the 1% who were taking it and the 99% need to be a cut of mm. all the shares that are being produced by the economy. But the, activ- the activists actually went for really extreme positioning that alienated most of its potential allies. They actually started uh, sitting on the middle of Wall Street and so forth and stopping... the and. Most of the 99%, they're not ready to sit on the middle of the street mm. and, uh, and, and join these guys, right? So there's a whole arsenal of weapons you can choose from for this movement. They chose the most extreme one that only a very small minority extreme will be part of. And that way, they couldn't actually change the majority. Yeah, if you think about it, in terms of numbers, obviously, there's a hell of a lot more people in the 99% than in the 1%. So it should be, it's a pretty unfair fight. But the issue was the people who were leading the 99% went way too extreme. And then the 99% felt, okay, Occupy Wall Street, you have to go and bloody sit 
there all day and throw eggs at the bankers. I don't know if that's what they did or not, but that's like so extreme that it turned everybody off. If they just couched as, you know, we're all part of this 99%, we all need to work together to make things more fair, it's much more palatable to the masses rather than going super, super extreme. I've got a similar example of what happened maybe two years ago. It was before the, 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 the meeting in Paris on the whole world to really stop climate change by 2050. A goal probably, again, mo- the majority of the, the, the world are all about this. So I went on a climate march, something that I believed in. But when I was on this climate march, it was really hijacked by extreme left uh, activists. And all of a sudden, the march wasn't just about global warming. It, was, it kind of creeped into other areas, like semi-related. All of a sudden, a lot of it was, it was about veganism. So all of a sudden, I'm walking as somewhere a little bit more moderate, but all about climate change. And I'm marching with people holding signs on both sides of me, all about meats, meat. And, you know, I was going for a chicken parma that night. <laughs> So it really did turn me off future future protests. So, mm. th- you know, they might be well-intentioned, but uh, being so extreme and not tempered really hurts the cause they're try- trying to fight for. Yeah, there's a big one at the moment in Australia, Stop Adani, which you actually mentioned on the podcast with Dr. Carl like over a year ago about this big new coal mine in Australia. I'd never heard about it, but now I'm seeing it more and more on the news. It seems like every political speech, there's someone from Stop Adani who runs onto stage holding the sign. It's almost like these guys, these guys are so extreme mm. that it, it does turn them off. Like it's a super important cause, but I think they're going about it the wrong way. Yeah, absolutely, man. Look, I'm, I'm major Stop Adani, mm. but it is tainted a little bit now because whenever I say Stop Adani, all of a sudden I'm associating yeah. myself with one of these radical, radical people who you know, disrupts just normal uh, political discourse. Mm, yeah. Man, it's probably a bit of Alan Carr in here as well now that I think about it that he puts himself on on your side. It's not like he's going out there to all the smokers and chopping the ends of their cigarettes off. That would be too extreme. Rather, he's sort of like getting on their side, pacing and leading a bit, conferring their self-opinion and then using that to move people. Mm. You always get the opportunity to inject a bit of Machiavelli. <laughs> I like it though. I love it. So now that we've sort of, uh, we've come up with our ideas first, We've second, we've talked about how to actually spread these ideas in an effective way. The, the third part is about managing your emotions. So obviously, it's going to be tough to do this, but it's important to manage your emotions to keep you going on this journey of spreading this new original idea. So one thing you need to do is motivate yourself differently when you're committed versus uncertain. So when you're determined to act, just focus on the progress left to go, right? If you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, you're going to be more energized to hit it hard. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if you're questioning the direction you're on, Focus on how far you've already come and why would you give up now? So it's sort of like using this sunk cost bias against yourself. So if you're committed, then show how much you've got left to go and you'll keep working. If you're questioning yourself, show how much progress you've already made. Another important one is to focus on the victim, not the perpetrator. So he talks about how in the face of injustice, if you think about the perpetrator, you're just going to fuel your anger and aggression. It's not very useful. But if you shift towards the victim, you become more empathic and the chances are you'll channel this anger in a more positive direction to make change. So one big example is sort of like the white cop shooting the black kid. If you think of the white cop, how he's racist and shooting all these black people for no reason, you're just going to get angry and aggressive. It's not going to help. But if you focus on the black people who are being you know, unfairly treated, you're going to have the empathy in order to fuel towards some kind of helpful productivity. Another piece of advice he's got here, he says, realize you're not alone. So even even having a single ally is enough to, to dramatically to dramatically increase your willingness to act. 
if you've got this idea about how you want to change the status quo, almost certainly you're not the only one out there. There's probably a whole bunch of people who's got the same ideas, but they've just got the same fear that you do. So if you're the first one to act, you might have a whole bunch of allies just following you, following right behind you. Yeah, exactly. It's obviously easier to do it with a bit of support than to do it by yourself. And the final banger, he says, remember that if you do not take initiative and you don't become original, the status quo will persist. Yeah, it's a mic drop. That is. <laughs> <laughs>